0: When, when he, um... Watch him. That Two weeks ago, Pastor Mike uh, finished us up in the book of Malachi in the, in the Old Testament. And uh, this morning, we're starting the New Testament. I don't know how this worked out, but I got to start the Old Testament with Genesis, and I get to start the New Testament with Matthew, and I'm kind of excited by that. I'm a little bit of a history nerd, history buff. And in both of those books, we get to see a lot of the, hist- the, the historical significance of where we are today and how we got there, what God did. And so this morning, I want to help you to understand some of that. Matthew is the bridge between the Old and the New Testament. It closes out the events of the Old Testament by introducing us to Jesus Christ. And then it leads us through his birth, his development, and then the development into the church age, at the beginning of the church. There's a period between the Old and New Testament that Pastor Mike referred to uh, last week. I hope everybody took their allergy medication uh, because... That's a lot of pollen that's going by. Anyway, uh, sorry, squirrel, I get sidetracked easily. I see these white things going by. So uh, there's a period of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament that Pastor Mike referred to, and some folks referred to, to it as the 400 silent years. Now, let me just say something about that. We're going to talk about those. It's really four to 500 years, closer to 500 They're not really silent in terms of the fact that God wasn't at work. And they refer to silent in this way that they say there's no prophetic word that was written down and given to mankind during those four to five hundred years. There's nothing that we have in Scripture that was written by a prophet that was given to us. But it's during that time that some massive events took place in history that prepare for Matthew, for the coming of, of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about some of those events that took place, and then I want to talk to you about the book of Matthew for a few minutes. But if you're sitting here this morning and you're not a history buff, just bear with me, would you, for I'm going to try to keep it. I told Pam that I would try to keep it to five minutes. I'll try not to get off on any little tangents and stories, but I want you to buckle your seats. I want you to get ready because we're going to cover four to five hundred years in five minutes. Okay, you think this is possible? No, neither do I. All right, the end of Malachi sets this stage for you the nation of Israel is back in their homeland of Palestine. Jerusalem is now theirs. They've rebuilt the temple. It is not at the same level as was when Solomon built it in all of its glory. But but they had come back. They rebuilt the walls. You remember the story? We read that in the Old Testament. They put the temple back together. They're worshiping back in the temple. They are no longer under Babylonian rule, although they're not under their own rule at this point either. The priests are functioning the way that they should. It's the line of Aaron. And the priests are back in the temple. They're doing the sacrifices. All of that is taking place the way that it was supposed to. But the royal family of David is not on the throne. See, Zerubbabel, if you remember him from our studies, he should have been the next in line, but he wasn't. The Persian kings at that time had put someone else on the throne. And so they weren't under their own rule. And so in order to get to the book of Matthew four to 500 years later, the entire landscape has to change. It's got to be completely different than what they're living in right at this moment. And God in his incredible wisdom is about to do that. See, Rome has to become the major power. Rome's not even on the, in the picture at this point. In Malachi, it doesn't even exist, but in Matthew, four to five hundred years later, they're the major power. And so everything in the landscape politically has to change. So that's what we're going to look at really quick. We're going to look at the rearrangement of the historical landscape in that region. I know you're excited right now. You can hardly wait. At the height of Persian power, a Macedonian rose up. It was a leader named Philip of Macedon, and he was in Greece. And he rose up, and he started to put together a group of cities that were going to end up taking over Persia. Now, this name probably will ring true for some of you. you. You ever heard of this guy named Alexander the Great? Well, Alexander the Great was Philip's son. And he comes in after his dad, Philip, and he unites all these people. And at 20 years old, he puts an army together and he marches through Persia and he wipes out the entire nation, the greatest nation that I've ever been known. He wipes them off the face of the earth. And over the next 12 years of his life, he takes over the then known. So by 32 years old, this young man had taken over all of the known world. He'd gone down into Egypt. He'd taken everything over and he got bored and he started to drink and he drank himself to death because he was bored. And after he died, he hadn't done a very good job at uniting his kingdom. And after he died, his kingdom split under his four generals into four very separate kingdoms. Now, if you're paying attention to the book of Daniel, you will remember that's exactly what Daniel said would happen. The prophecies of Daniel are coming true in this four to 500 year span. And so that begins to fall apart. Alexander the Great, he, he, couldn't, he couldn't hold it together because he didn't set up the right type of kingdom. And it's divided into four. And while it's divided into four, the nation of Israel and Palestine is right in the center of these four nations. And they're beat to death as these four begin to fight with each other. It's exactly what Daniel said would happen. During this time when Israel, the nation of Israel and Palestine is being beat half to death, a group known as the Hellenists rise up, which later in the book of Matthew, we understand them to be the Sadducees and the Hellenists, they rise up as liberals, and they decide, look, if we join the the people of Greece, then everything will be fine. Well, there was another group that rose up at the same time known as the Pharisees. You remember them from the New Testament? Well, the Pharisees rose up at the same time because they didn't want to join the people from Greece. They wanted to stay traditional and stay to their rule and their law, and so so these two groups began within the nation of Israel to fight one another, and the Sadducees wanted to, to, to make some room and become liberal and accept things that way we can live at peace with these people who are beating on us and 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 the pharisees are saying no no we have to stay true to the law and they got they got more and more into the law and they they put harder restrictions on their people and when you get to the book of matthew you find jesus looks at them and says they're hypocrites they're not keeping the law with their heart they're just keeping the law because that's the thing to do Well, it's in these 400 years that these two parties come up and rise up. While all this is going on, Egypt once again begins to rise its head. The first king, though, in Egypt, who starts to pull all this together, looked at the Hebrew scriptures and he said, these Hebrew scriptures really, really matter. So he grabbed 70 scholars and he pulled those 70 scholars together and he had them write what we know today as the Septuagint. He had the Old Testament written in Greek. We still use it today. You think God was at work? Down in Egypt, while everybody else is fighting, all these scholars are working at rewriting the Old Testament so that it would be kept and preserved for us 2,000 years later. Well, Egypt rises up and a battle takes place. And eventually Syria also gets in on the battle and they're waging war at one another. And the guy from Syria... He's known as a madman. He's known as, the, as a vile leader. Comes into Jerusalem and Daniel said that there would be one who would rise up and he would defile the temple and he would ruin the, the city of Jerusalem. And this leader from Syria, it's exactly what he does. He rides into Jerusalem. He defiles the temple. He kills a pig on the altar of the temple. He sells off the priesthood from the line of, of Aaron. He sells it to the highest bidder, and he sets up his own form of worship, and the Jews are almost, once again, they're just beat. And for 2,300 days, six and a half years, which is what Daniel said was going to happen, that king, that leader defiled the temple. And in that period of time, the Jewish rulers and the Jewish leaders, the the, the Jewish uh priests began to set up different forms of worship and synagogues were born. And they began to worship in synagogues. Remember in the New Testament, Paul always went to where? Not the temple. He went to the synagogue. Well, because of what happened in the temple, the Jewish people began to worship in different forms in different places. And those two in Egypt and Syria were fighting at each other and beating on each other and the Jews were in the middle. And in the middle of that, this little empire began to rise its head. Guess who it was? Rome. And Rome wasn't strong yet, but it began to play on the sides of the war that was going on, and it began to make treaties and do all kinds of things. And the next thing you know, Rome rides in and takes over Jerusalem and Palestine, and Rome becomes the number one power. And that is when we catch up with Matthew. You just did four to 500 years of history. I don't know if I was more than five minutes, but oh, thanks. Thanks, Chris. Chris is paying attention. But that is what happens and what brings us to the book of Matthew and now when you start reading the book of Matthew all these things that you're about to read they make sense because God had taken the power that was from the east to the west all of a sudden it's no longer the Babylonians who are in power; it's the Romans all of a sudden all the things that the Jews had stood for all the things that the Jews had put in place they're not in the temple anymore they're in synagogues there's, there's religious factions within the nation and the Jewish people are now looking for somebody to bring hope somebody come along and save us. We've been beat. If you look at that historical period of time, Jerusalem was ransacked 27 different times. These people had had it. And they're waiting for who? A Messiah. Now that's why they were waiting politically, folks. We go through the New Testament and we keep saying that they missed the boat. Well, no wonder why they missed the boat. You would too. I would too. It had been a horrible existence. But that's where we find the book of Matthew. Herod the Great is on the throne at this point, and he's about ready to leave lead He's a pseudo king who's sitting on the throne. He really has no power. But in Matthew chapter 2, 1 to 2, this is what we read. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of who? Herod the king. Wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Who is this that's been born king of the Jews? They're waiting. Something major is about to happen. So after 500 years of war and unrest, a puppet king from the line of Esau, not Jacob, is on the throne. The priests are not from the line of Aaron. The Sadducees and the Pharisees are fighting for control, and the Jews are looking for an, a Messiah. Galatians 4.4 4 said it this way. When the time came to completion, God sent his son of a woman born under the law. God's timing was perfect. God wasn't being silent in those years. He was at work. Hey, folks, the same thing's happening to us today. When we think that God is not there and he's not saying anything, he's at work. He's moving. He's behind the scenes doing what God is always doing. He's preparing for his kingdom, preparing for what he has to do. When we started the book of Genesis we were interested we were introduced to the story of mankind to what was going on as God created mankind in Genesis 5 chapters one and two we read this this is the document containing the family records of Abraham and on the day that God created man he made him in his likeness of God he created them male and female and when he, they were created he blessed them and called them mankind Genesis starts with God saying here's mankind I created him in my image and likeness i create him for fellowship and friendship with me and very shortly if you look at that book man turned his back on his creator and he sinned against god and in a very few verses you find murder you find deception you find families ripped apart you find man going his own way doing his own thing romans said it this way for the wages of sin is death that's what happened to mankind in his creation in Matthew, the opposite is true. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, we are introduced to God himself in human form, coming to make right what man messed up in Genesis. Jesus comes to the earth to change the course of history for all mankind, the one he created in his image to have a relationship with, who broke that relationship and went their own way. God says, now is the perfect time for me to send my son, Jesus Christ, to to make that right, to renew that. And so for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is what? Eternal life. Man messed up, and what man messed up, God said, in Christ, I will make right. That's the book of Matthew. That's the book of Matthew. The Old Testament continually showed man's need for a a redeemer, a savior, a deliverer. And the beginning of the New Testament fulfilled the promise in Christ. And what you find in the beginning of the New Testament is that 60 prophecies of the Old Testament are made right in Jesus Christ. They're fulfilled completely in the person of Jesus Christ. What was promised over and over and over again. And the Jewish people are waiting. Please send us hope. Send us help. Jesus Christ. 60 of the promises are fulfilled when Jesus is born. It he comes. Amazing. Amazing period of time. Amazing things going on. Matthew is the bridge between the Old and New Testament. It's the only gospel that sets the stage for what's about to happen. The rest of them just jump into the story. But Matthew shows us the steps that get us there. He shows us the line and the lineage of David which becomes the line of Jesus Christ. The Gospels don't tell us much about Jesus' early years at all. They really just tell us three years of ministry. And and actually, even in those three years of ministry, John said it this way. He said, there are so many other things that Jesus did, which if one were to write them down, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. So in three years of ministry, Jesus fulfills so much of the Old Testament, but also does so much ministry that you can't even contain everything that he did. Do you think Jesus coming and being written about in Matthew is a big deal? Do you? Did I put you to sleep with my history lesson? Or is it the sun? One of the major keys to understanding the New Testament, folks, is this. It's the significance of the change that Jesus brought. Jesus takes us from the law of the Old Testament that was set up to prove how badly mankind needed a Savior and needed to be redeemed, how far far short we fell in our relationship with God and our ability to be made right with God. Jesus came to show us the grace of a redeemer, one who would save. He said it this way in Matthew five seventeen. He said, don't think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill it. Fulfill it. To make it happen, to make it right, to make it real for you and for me. And his picture of grace is a picture of redemption by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. A relationship with a holy God was restored through Jesus Christ. We could have access to the presence of God. It's a huge difference from the Old Testament. But understand that that difference is massively confusing to the people who are witnessing Jesus show up on the scene. They have gone from a period of time of of animal sacrifice and priests who stood before God on their behalf to Jesus Christ who says, no, you don't need to do that anymore. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And anyone who wants to come to the Father comes through me. What a difference. And for us, looking back, we go, how did they miss it? (laughs) We probably would have struggled as well. We probably would have struggled as well. And now we go from Old Testament saints to New Testament Christ followers and disciples of Jesus Christ. From looking ahead to what could be to living in the middle of what is, what Jesus is providing. What a difference. It's huge. The change is massive. From living for what will come to living in what is, what God has provided for us, the presence of the Holy Spirit living in us now. What a difference. What a difference. And so all the way through the Gospels, Jesus is going to throw a wrench into how they live life, and it's going to change dramatically, massively. Let me set up a few of those changes that he makes In Matthew chapter 5, he says, No longer are you going to look to the priest, but you are going to be salt and light. Look at this. He says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill can't be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, And it gives light for all who are in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. It goes from, hey, it's all about the religious system and the priest. And Jesus says, no, in me, you become the light. You become the salt. You're the difference maker. Why? Because I'm going to reside in you. I'm going to live in you. My spirit is going to be in you. And he tells the people of the day, he says, look, now it's no longer about them coming to make sacrifice. It's going to be about them going to make a difference, going to change lives. It's no longer about you coming to church. It's a great place to worship. It's a great place to be encouraged. But what it's really about is being on mission, this mission that Jesus is talking about. It's going to make a difference. So salt and light was one of the big changes that he says to them. Then he says this, you need to love and to forgive. He says it this way, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, it's different than that. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on evil and good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your father in heaven is perfect. Jesus looks at these people and he says, look, it's a new day. It's not just love your neighbor. Remember the Old Testament? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. No. It's not just that anymore. It's also love your enemy. Those people that took you over 27 times, love them, care for them. Those people that persecute you and cause you hurt, love them, care for them. And why? Because the example of Jesus Christ for you is this, that in well, you were still a sinner. You didn't love God. I didn't love God. What did he do? Christ died for me. It wasn't because I loved him. It wasn't because I was looking at God saying, God, please save me. It wasn't it in that while I was still sinning against God, while my heart was still against God, Jesus Christ went to the cross and he looked ahead of time and he said, that guy Tim Knowles, he needs a savior. He doesn't know it yet, but he's not gonna be able to do this. He needs help. By the way, I need a lot of help. And so do you. And Jesus went to the cross and Jesus looks at these people and he says, look, my love is totally different than what you thought. Those very people that hate you and are using you wrong, I want you to go and I want you to love them. I want you to care for them. I want you to be light and I want you to be salt to those people. I want you to show them a different way. I want them to understand a different thing about religion. It's not religion. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ, with me. And he goes on. If you go through the gospel of Matthew, he keeps going and he says, I want to talk to you about if you think about killing someone in your heart, you've already done it and you murdered If you think about about another person inappropriately, sexually, you've already committed the act of adultery already in your heart. You've already done it. I want you to understand that everything begins in your heart, your relationship with me, your actions toward others. Everything begins in your heart, and as God, I'm looking at your heart, and I'm looking at your actions, and I want that to change. It's It's not external anymore. It's internal. It's a personal relationship with me. I want you to tell the truth. I want your yes to always be yes. I don't, I don't want you to deceive anyone. I don't want you to lead anybody astray. I want you to be straight up with everybody that you talk to all the time. I want you to forgive those who hurt you. I don't want you to retaliate. I want you to love your enemies. I want you to give from the heart, not because people are watching or it's expected, but because you love God so much, it's the only reason to give. That's what I want you to do. I want you to pray to your father. And at this moment, all of a sudden, it clicks in some of their minds. This is really different because we couldn't pray to the father before. We had to go to the priest. And Jesus goes, no, now because of what I'm about to do on the cross, you have complete access to the presence of God. You are the priest. Whoa, hold it. What are you talking about? That can't be right. And Jesus says, yes, this is the difference that I'm making. It's no longer about a system. It's now about a personal walk in relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me stop right here for a minute. Folks, is that you? Do you have that? Have you come to the place in your walk with God where you have a personal, ongoing, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ that's real? You're not waiting for someone else to go into the presence of God for you. You're not waiting for someone else to do the work for you. You have had and started a relationship with God himself by yourself, for yourself. Is that you? That's the difference that Jesus is making when he comes in Matthew He comes so that we get to have life and hope and a different future. He did something that would start a change in all of the known world, and it's called His church. When Jesus goes to the cross and He rises again the third day, and He brings His spirit to mankind, He starts His church and a few followers of Jesus Christ who accept the mission of Jesus Christ changed the world more than Alexander the Great ever dreamed of doing. They changed the world. They changed the course of history. They changed the heart of humanity because of what Jesus Christ offered them and what they accepted. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus gives them these words. Let me read them to you. The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. <laughs> Even in seeing Jesus Christ, I find that little phrase so interesting, because folks, it's me, it's you. We see God do incredible things. We watch Jesus answer prayer. We we see him, uh, we see him help our family. We see him save marriages, we see them do all kinds of wonderful things, and yet we still go, God, have you got this? God, do I need to step in and fix this? It says, and some doubted. And Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What a massive change Jesus is making right here. Did you catch it? Jesus says at this point, he goes, look, You're my follower. You you have accepted my payment for your sin. And at this moment, I'm charging you. I'm commanding you. I'm giving you a mission. Here's your mission. Go give it away. What I've done for you, what I've given you, the forgiveness, the freedom that is yours, the removal of your guilt of sin, go give it away. I give you the authority. I give you the strength. I'll give you the words. I'll give you my Holy Spirit. The ministry, the mission is yours. Go do it. And I'll be with you all the way through it. Folks, hasn't changed at all in 2,000 years. The mission, still exactly the same. Jesus is saying the exact same thing to you and I this morning. I came God, as a man, I paid the price so that you wouldn't be separated from me anymore. If you accept my gift, go give it away. Go give it away. Believer, follower of Christ, have you been given it away? Or are you a light that's hidden? Are you salt that lost its flavor? Have you decided that, hey, my life has changed, I'm good? Have you hidden? Or you've been given away the love of Jesus Christ as he commanded us to? That's the book of Matthew. Matthew is the coming of the Messiah to make right what man ruined. They separated their relationship from man to God and Jesus came to make it right. He wants you to go. Go to give away what he gave you. Father, would you grant us the courage to say yes? Would you grant us the ability to allow your spirit to speak through us? God, would you help us to be on mission here in this town, through this church, the way you've asked? In your name we pray, amen. Would you stand as we worship together?